Hello, welcome to FEPS Talks. My name is Laszlo Ander. I am the Secretary General of FEPS, the Foundation for European Progressive Studies. FEPS Talks is our podcast series. It has been running for over one year. And uh, today, at the very last uh, podcast of 2020, I have the pleasure uh, to welcome my fellow Secretary General, the Secretary General of Solidar, which is a European umbrella organization of uh, civil society, Mikael Ley, who is Swedish, and uh, assumed uh, this office in 2020. So I suppose uh, 2020 has been a change in your life, but I suppose Solidar, which is an organization having solidarity in the name, looked at the great COVID-19 crisis as uh, a turning point in European politics, but also in the life of civil society organization, when solidarity has to be stepped up at last at the European level. Would you agree, Mikael, that this turning point actually happened? Is it, from your perspective, an illusion or a reality? Hi, uh, thank you, Laszlo, and thank you for the invitation. Um, indeed, it has been a year um, of change for me personally, but also a very dramatic year for Europe. And I think the answer to this question is two-edged. I think, um, on the, I mean, it's, it's put the solidarity to the test on a global scale both on an individual level, in terms of the kind of solidarity that we are prepared to show uh, society and our fellow citizens in terms of committing to restrictions, to a change in behavior, to do and live differently than we normally do, to the benefit not just for me and my own personal safety, but also for the general development of uh, health in my context, as well as in countries, be, you know, be, between and within regions, as well as in the in Europe and between member states. And, and on, on the one hand, I think we have a it's it's very much both and in very positive on from one perspective and we've seen a massive support for a change in behavior generally with a few exceptions but i mean people have generally just turned their lives around accepted the fact that there are a crisis of uh, proportions we haven't seen uh, so far which then calls for measures that are unknown uh, that has been unknown in scale in width and willing to comply the EU as well, I think, learned the lesson also from a very positive point of view in relation to the 2008 crisis and other political events of importance that this was really time to come together and uh, agree on a way forward that allows the EU to come out in support of its member state. The realization that the EU could not afford as a project to fail its member states again in terms of being this harbor where they could go, this arena where they could take their issues and say, listen, we need your help now. And the EU as a project had to be able to step up and say, yes, we can. We will support you in your financial, social, economical situations. So they did. On the other hand, it's also, and in that regard, all everyone was a progressive right? in the beginning. <laughs> it was a, Everyone was not just a progressive, everybody was an interventionist. Yes. State must come. The state must be there. Where is the state? Where is the European umbrella that should protect us? All the voices who previously were very keen on national sovereignty and the importance of private uh, solutions and, and the dynamics of the market were very uninterested in what the market has to say. Very mm. also uninterested of what the nation state would be able to offer to a large extent. So in that regard, it was very interesting to follow from a Europeanist and a progressive point of view, 
the way this conversation would really turn on its head. And I think on the downside, I think there has been solidarity, yes, but it's not the what we are seeing now emerging in terms of the proposals being made. From Solidar's point of view, not enough credit and not enough room and space is being made for the actors that stepped in to a large extent in a very solidaric manner during the initial phase and the ongoing through the pandemic in terms of civil society at the forefront, in terms of catering for the needs of the sectors at the forefront, people in health sector, people in educational sector, and taking a quiet now as we are building, trying to design the recovery plans, it's not necessarily so, I mean, from what we are seeing, emerging that the initial interventionist progressive uh, sort of spirit is sort of fading away. So the national recovery plans and the discussion at the EU level on the MFF as well is not demonstrating that level of commitment to a social Europe for all. Uh, where all I mean, rights is, is catered for and the, the rights of all are catered for and so forth. So I think it's dual in a sense. And I think we are now as progressives, we're in a fight over the interpretation of the lessons drawn from this crisis. And we have all the reasons and all the answers and all the facts on our side, but we really need to come together to win the fight over the paradigm here. So make sure that it's a shift that is long lasting and not temporarily. So when the voices of austerity, the voices of market solutions and more market oriented development, the wholesale sort of package of neoliberalism comes back, we are prepared to defend the perspective of the pandemic because that's also used now to a large extent as we are discussing how we're supposed to build back. So I think it's a bit dual. I see the point. Um, because of the COVID-19, we have a lockdown and social distancing, which makes you know, also political interactions a little bit difficult, especially in the Brussels context. But if you take that aside, how do you see the representation of civil society at the European Union level? Because you pointed to the recovery strategies in which I would assume uh, civil society organizations would be demanding a say, some influence, uh, contributions, Uh, participating in designing uh, new strategies. Have you found opportunities for dialogue and influence or you face more the barriers rather than the opportunities? Generally, I would say that we are deeply concerned about the ongoing development for civil society, not just in relation to the possibilities of dialogue that you're talking about. There are less now than they used to be. And they're not as institutionalized as they were before the crisis. So with the crisis, as a crisis, a lot of things has been put on its head, as you say, not just because we work from a distance, but also because a lot of sort of emergency measures are put in place. And in terms of the participation at the EU level, and, and perhaps the most clear case here is the European semester and how that whole process that was emerging as a real venue for civil dialogue on core aspects of Europe as a social Europe and the implementation, the action plan of the European Pillar of Social Rights and how that could be made into a reality because establishing it was already a win for society and progressives and social actors in Europe. And having it then, we were also involved we were quite optimistic i mean i was quite optimistic about the possibilities that was opening up with the european pillar of social rights and then putting that in relation with the european semester and how that could be a really beneficial conversation starter between civil society and policymakers and so forth and now with the national recovery plans taking a lot of the space from this making becoming the vehicle for the european semester in the coming years the commission has yes uh, is pledging to and calling all national actors and national parliaments to invite civil society in development of these plans. But to our understanding, when we ask our members, this is not happening to the extent that we would expect them to. One might be understanding. Eh? It's it's an emergency. Timeframes are very short. It's very hard to set up sort of set up shop 
uh, as easy as one might be able to under normal circumstances, also because of limitations of meeting and so forth. But our, not the, the will does not seem to be there either. And too many governments are using the opportunity to do these quite opaque processes, developing plans that are not involving stakeholders in, in not just from civil society, but also from social partners and elsewhere. And I think that also brings me to the second point, which is the worrying tendency of shrinking space for civil society also within Europe. And a lot of governments using this um, emergency situation, this crisis, as a reason to limit uh, participation and representation of society and, and opposition in the respective governments. And that's a very worrying sign also inside Europe that we get a lot of worrying um, messages from my members in this regard. So that's something we take very seriously and, and, and deeply concerning, I think, for Europe as well. Understandably. Uh, you mentioned the uh, pillar of social rights, uh, highlighting its importance. We know it was launched in Gothenburg, uh, very famously. If you look into, you look ahead to 2021, what steps would you like to see in order to turn the pillar of social rights into reality? Because that's the name of the game, isn't it, from your perspective, um, to see that this important document doesn't just remain on paper, but increasingly and you know deeper and deeper, it um, affects uh, EU-level policymaking. What is your, let's say, top three, if you can you know, list a few key steps which you would like to see in the next year? Thank you. Uh, I think the upcoming meeting the, of the Portuguese presidency uh, in Porto would be very important in terms of the action plan. And what I would like to see, the kind of decisions I would like to see to be taken there is to clearly link the European Pillar of Social rights to real decision-making in the union. And, and one of those venues where that would uh, is the European semester still. It remains one of these main tools for engaging with the member states and on hardcore issues. So I'm uh, coming from, from uh, speaking as a progressive and, and a view on, on society and contextualized and material, the EPSR has to be related to economic issues and budgetary matters. And if it's not made a financial sort of framework issue, it won't have the weight that it, then it will be treated like a rights issue, a general rights issue. And then, yes, it could be implemented and incorporated in a lot of steering documents and policies and so forth. But the real weight will come when we measure progress in relation to EPSR in terms of how the money we spend on mechanisms to guarantee its implementation on a national level and that we in the at the European level provide the instrument to do the necessary monitoring of the progress made on the national level. So I think our study that we did, FEPS and Solidar together in terms of inequalities in the European semester, points to the kind of dynamics that we need at the European level in terms of the tools. So in, in a way, that's one of the things. The other thing that I think is really important for the EPSR is to connect it to the Green Deal. <clears throat> I think we can't afford to keep them isolated. And we have uh, we have not done enough, I think, it was described by uh, someone in this in, in our progressive gathering as the need for a marriage between uh, Timmermans uh, and Schmidt. And I think that's very true. I mean, we need to make sure that these two um, very, very important documents for the future are of Europe and, and for our societies, that they speak to each other. So that the only way to make a just transition understandable for the general public is to create a link between climate justice and social justice. And climate justice then being presented by a wide-ranging and deeply penetrating policy proposal like the Green Deal with EPSR guaranteeing the social rights of, of citizens. So the people can feel secure that when we embark on this new change, transition to a new kind of society, I can feel reassured that this is done with the all efforts at the same time put in place to make guarantee my rights uh, as a citizen. So I think that those would be my two top priorities in this regard. Then I have a question, because uh, for some people, especially, let's say, from Central and Eastern Europe, but maybe also from Southern Europe, minimum wage coordination would be an issue where they test 
the reality of the pillar of social rights, because at some point it also refers to uh, decent income. How would uh, your Swedish self respond to that? So in order to answer that question, well, I put on my Swedish hat. My Swedish hat would say this, the Scandinavian model based on, on party negotiations, eh, awarding the labor market partners to uh, negotiate these kind of things on themselves is, is crucial for the Swedish model to carry itself. From a Swedish perspective, we don't see, it's not called for in, the, in our context, not necessary and it's actually a great risk for the objectives of the European Pillar of Social Rights to mess with this model and replace it with something else, a more legalistic model of a central southern European model. Mm. And we have still enough levels of organization in, in, of trade union, I mean the unionization in our countries that facilitates those kind of uh, conversations between the partners. So it's not about putting that... In conflict, I mean, the only ones who are interested in creating a conflict between the collective bargaining model of the Scandinavian North and our social, I mean, our friends and allies in the South are uh, people who don't really care about the European Pillar of Social Rights to begin with. I mean, we care a lot about uh, now speaking as a Swede now and a trade unionist, perhaps. I'm following. Okay, I'll, I'll put on that hat, even though it, perhaps it's not mine to put on. But we care and we fight for the rights of our friends all across Europe and the right to have a minimum wage that you can live on. That You don't have to take several jobs to pay for your uh, rent or to put food on the table and so forth. And there's an absolute need for us to guarantee that at the European level. That is true. However, European policy, and I think that's true for many, most policies, will have to be dynamic enough as to award, with the eyes on the objective, award different ways to that achieving that objective. So it's not about fighting the implementation of minimum wages in a system that doesn't have the unionization nor the social partners in place, the institutions in place to make that happen in the Swedish way. Well, by all means, we should have then a legalized perspective, putting minimum wages at the table to fo force the labor partners to uh, commit to a decent living and a decent wage. Mm. However, that European policy proposal shouldn't exclude other ways of achieving the same and, or even better wage levels. I mean, then, then it forfeits its purpose. It's not just about the minimum wage, it's about the way I think we articulate European policy. So if I now come back with my European hat, I think if we're going to do, talk about something at the Conference of the Future of Europe, is to find a strike a new balance between the national interest of member states and that the, the overstate uh, um, responsibilities of the EU. And there must be another balance, I'm convinced, between a mere black and white, I think, not so interesting conversation between are we for an overstate solution or a federalistic view or not? But rather, I mean, a much more complex conversation about, well, in some instances, we have to have overstate and federal solutions. I mean, in terms of environmental policy, it's absolutely clear. Most probably when it comes to tax savings and taxation, certain aspects of that, we need to have federal conversations as well, even if it meddles into really, really sensitive issues and a member states issue. On other policies, we have to find a more measured and balanced way forward to take into consideration where the member states are actually succeeding in the way that we, the ambitions of this are happening. That might be my answer. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Look, if we can um, remain for a moment uh, with the northern dimension, I think one of the most important developments of 2020 in response to the COVID crisis was uh, uh, the transformation of the European budget to invent new tools. And indeed, um, a kind of north-south debate on this question was also quite interesting. Do you want to look back on this question? How, let's say, you know, 
the various um, uh, views diverged regarding um, the European budget, um, the conventional budget, um, where rebates uh, still play, uh, unfortunately, an important part, and the new budget, um, in which maybe also Eurozone or non-Eurozone countries might have had differing uh, perspectives. Well, in that regard, I think I'm a more, I find it hard to put on the Swedish hat or the Nordic hat, because I think the frugals are missing the, an opportunity to advance more expansionist. To begin with, it was a necessity, it, was, it sprung out of a necessity that was felt across Europe. And to be on the side of saying no in relation to that necessity, I think is creating an unnecessary breach in Europe between people who should stay just on the same side on this issue. Like we needed this financial muscle of the EU and the support of the EU to sort of come across where we start about this in solidarity. Mm-hmm. I don't think it was the right time to be on the wrong side of solidarity. If you will. On the other aspect, as a progressive, I think the progressive governments of the North also missed an opportunity to advance at the European level, the paradigm of an expansionist policy instead of the austerity policies of the past that we are not, that we are alienated to. I mean, not that we don't at sometimes need to be comply with austerity or be controlled and measured in our budgeting. Of course not. We're not owe everything to everyone all the time. That cannot be the policy. But to keep austerity as a sort of golden rule for all times, all the time, irrespective of the circumstances, is this pandemic has proved that completely mm-hmm. wrong, of course. And also proven the people who said that expansionist policies were impossible, almost per definition, given the financial... Mean, proven them wrong uh, again and again. And there's always money if the circumstances are deemed to be dire enough. Mm. It's only a matter of the political majorities and the political will behind those decisions. And I think progressives have all to gain to question the, this golden rule of austerity that's been in, in place in the European level and nationally for a long time. And this was a great opportunity for us to do so, to join the call for a more expansionist policy. So I think Looking back, or well, still the ongoing debate, I think uh, this is not the right position to take, I, 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 I must say. Yeah, I think in the summer, if you remember the European Council meeting, when they were meeting in Brussels for 100 hours, the changes that were made uh, through these um, various interventions were minor you know, shifting a few billions from uh, grants to loans as compared to the overall package. And I think the missed opportunity is um, exactly to speak more about the quality of spending rather than the volumes. Because I think that's where the Netherlands, as well as some of the Nordic countries, together with Austria, could have made a a greater uh, difference and more inroads to improve the quality of um, EU spending, which came up marginally on issues like the rule of law debate. But the rule of law is not the only issue where the quality of EU spending Uh, could be uh, discussed. So uh, hopefully it's not too late. I would agree with you that there is a a feeling of a missed opportunity on that front. I think, I mean, I think what I said, this relates a lot for me to what I said in the beginning of of the fight over a paradigm. And I think what we are now, when we decided to just advance this as a, I mean, taking a sort of outside look into the EU and saying, we're not more money until you have proven that you can do things, rather. I think you're, Absolutely right, the last one saying that the um, we are then making it very difficult to talk about all the nuances in this discussion, from rule of law to the quality of spending to the budgetary processes to the monitoring mechanisms that all of all of could have been or I mean, they remain on the table. We are still 
they're still up there for us to take, but they are definitely there. And if we do take them on, the time is, our, is ours now mm. to articulate this agenda in all its aspects from a progressive point of view. And I mean, we should just take it. We should seize this moment clearly. Otherwise, we will be, con- be in the same kind of lost identity situation, I fear, uh, when this pandemic is over as we were in 2008, when everybody asked, well, so the finance bubble just burst and the whole world economy went into a meltdown. And then essentially the progressives did not move an inch in terms of retaking some of the narrative of nor on finances, nor on global capital flows, nor on tax. I mean, no, none of these issues. Tax, they, we didn't advance a bit. I don't know what's stopping us, I must say. And I am very again, passionate about this. <laughs> I don't know. We should just, it's our time. Mm-hmm. Everything speaks to our favor. We should just do it. Don't you think? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Look, getting close to the end of um, uh, the time which um, has been allocated, but let me still uh, ask you about uh, uh, the following. The Nordic model, you have already pointed to this, that uh, you know, from the point of view of social progress, indeed, uh, the, the, the countries of Northern Europe remain a kind of leading light. Uh, social democracy is relatively stronger in the North than in many other parts of uh, Europe. But COVID-19 is a major challenge. I think it has been a major challenge for Sweden. My impression is that the strength of the Nordic model was displayed better in Denmark and Finland rather than in Sweden regarding the COVID. Um, If you agree with this, maybe you want to comment. And also, I was wondering about kind of longer term impact of the COVID on, on social democracy. I'm sure you have ideas on both the, the COVID impact and the kind of uh, the variations of country experience, even inside the North, and also what impact this may have in the longer term. Thank you. I think, well, yes, there are all, there are, um, at least the first one is, I think, a complicated issue. I think just by start out by saying that there are a lot of experts on epidemiology now. Where you find epidemiologists all over the place, people who never heard about the epidemics before are now all of a sudden experts in, in deciding and making judgments on assessment and assessing. In the Nordic countries, from one point of view, which is very clear and very factual, the Swedish model and Swedish version was, was not as successful as, as our Nordic neighbors. And I think that's just the number of deaths per relative, I mean, per, in, in relation to our size speaks a very clear language in this regard. I think we must admit that to be able to draw the necessary lessons from this, the way Sweden dealt with this pandemic. Um, on, the, on the other hand, I think we might not have all the facts on the table until after a few years. We can measure it now in terms of the human suffering and the individual suffering of the pandemic, as well as the financial and economic consequences and effects of this currently. But the pandemic has, as I understand it, the life that precedes the pandemic and that has a lot of reverberations after the pandemic as well in terms of the longer term and challenges that this puts in motion, depending on the measures that you chose during the pandemic. And maybe this difference will... this my assessment will be nuanced and changed as the time goes by, having a kinder look at the Swedish. What's true, though, for, and I have been personally lucky in this regard, my family and none of my friends have been severely hit by this. Life in that regard has been much easier, of course, for a large part of the Swedish population compared to many European neighbors. In terms of the effects of lockdown, what that means for a family when you can't send your kids to school, especially in, in for families who are who are dependent on, I don't know, school lunches for their kids to have a proper meal or when you have abusive relationships inside uh, between spouses or between uh, parents and kids. There's a lot of, I mean, that you see in also in Sweden, I think are factors and in, in indicators when assessing coming back to this from a progressive and social point of view that is, is perhaps not, we, are, we can't really 
take stock on right now. But for the time being, I think we can at least say that Sweden has not been as successful. I think that's a very sad and, and thing to say. And I think that also from a very like short-term effect of the COVID crisis on the social democratic the governments of, in Scandinavia, I think that also accounts for some of the variances. So the Danish social democratic parties remaining strong. They're only sort of continue to be stronger. I think they've won the hearts and minds of Danes in terms of the kind of measures they put in place and, and also seeing now the results of it. They can compare themselves to the rest of Europe and be happy with the result in, in a way, judging where they are. The same in Norway, but for not the, the progressive government there, but and the, in Finland as well. So I think they, they are quite... And in Sweden, it's a bit more mixed. On the, on the one hand, we still have a very strong belief in institutions and in the, in, in the professional management of uh, bureaucracy. So I think the state epidemiologists of Sweden still have a very strong standing in the, uh, the Swedish public. Starting to be a bit more questioned now uh, internally. The opposition is definitely now hands are off. I mean, bets are off in terms of having a unified position. Now they are changing positions as they think that they can make political gains, pretending that they, we were not all in the same boat in spring. They were just, now they are all just running with it. And to, to a certain extent, they are successful. So the Swedish experience is that we are at least from the high points of the spring, we are now decreasing again, all by stabilizing at quite good level compared historically. So I'm a bit conflicted about the short-term effects about, of COVID. I think it could be turned a bit it will depend a lot on the coming weeks and how the vaccination program then advances, what the final assessment will be about this. For social democracy, I think we, I will come back. I won't repeat myself. I'll just come back to the fact that I think COVID-19 for me, the interpretation that is valid is to say that this has been a magnifying glass of all the injustices, inequalities and remaining deficiencies of our societies and of our, of our democracies in Europe as for the European project. And we can draw the lessons from that from a progressive point of view saying we need to deal with this heads-on with a comprehensive progressive political program. Or we can do it in a sort of patchwork way where we sort of take some things on, but we don't really want to risk positions. We don't take other things on. Because what we need is a structural change. And if we as progressive, long time since, articulated that we need something different than a neoliberal project that we are now living under, now is the time to seize the opportunity to define that model. And there is something here between social justice and climate justice in relation to the ongoing and very on the skin felt emergency states that we are in that calls for this proposal. And and I think that's the lesson to be learned from the pandemic. And I hope that that is the perspective that we will win um, as progressives. But also that will depend on our joint efforts and that having all of the progressive family on board in this. And I look forward to 2021 then because we maybe, last we should say, we could do some commercial here for because the progressive family is already on the move here on the European level and a lot of interesting conversations. Mm-hmm. We have the PEST Congress coming up. That hopefully that will be an opportunity for us to talk about this and on a lot of other initiatives that is coming. So it's a, it's a promising year for this kind of conversation to take place, I think. Yeah, definitely it should be. Just one very last question. Um, from the COVID, um, of course, in Brussels, also a lot of conclusions were drawn. Resilience became a kind of buzzword that we have to strengthen resilience. But various political groups translate this differently. 
I think already at the start of the crisis, for social democrats, this meant a protection and promotion of public investment as compared to the neoliberal agenda, protection of the so-called essential workers and many gig workers who have left have been left unprotected. But could the could the strengthening of the civil society be the third point in, in a new progressive agenda? I think definitely so. Civil and social partners, right? Well, civil society in the sense that encompasses also the trade union movement and the social partners, then definitely I think it's an in, in, indispensable part. And if we want to, for the European project to, to, for it to make sense and to save the European project in the long run, I don't know if, I don't know, we, we talk recurrently about the EU in crisis, so maybe a bit, uh, <laughs> not take that too seriously. We seem, it seemed to be quite a sturdy cooperation project as well. Uh, we're very well knit together institutionally and economically and everything. But to deal with the gap that is experienced between policymakers at the EU level and citizens at the local level, I think civil society is a key component to make that bridge and bridge that gap. And to explain in practice why the European level is important to people and how it relates to people's lives very practically and directly. I think civil society has a great role to play there and should therefore also be included as a conversation partner to voice the concerns of their constituencies, constituencies at the European level so that the policymakers can feel assured that what we are proposing will not will land well with the our constituencies. I think that's a, it's a clear win-win for progressives here that we should go for. Wonderful. That's um, an excellent uh, perspective which you just highlighted. Uh, I think um, in 2021, indeed, we will have opportunities uh, to continue reflecting on uh, the COVID-19 lessons and also how it has impacted uh, social democratic politics. But also, as you also mentioned this, we can ensure that these issues find the right place in the conference on the future of Europe, because there are many aspects which we need to discuss with other political groups, uh, not only among uh, our own friends and within our own uh, circles. Thank you so much for your time. Thank and you. Um, thank you on behalf of FEPS uh, for being uh, such a great partner at the helm of Solidar on many, many good projects um, behind us, but also in our plans. Dear listeners, um, this has been the last podcast conversation uh, from uh, FEPS Talks. Uh, I thank uh, Michele for being our guest today. If you have time during the winter holidays, you should also listen to the earlier episodes because we recorded quite a few interesting ones in 2020 and we have the commitment to continue the same way in 2021 as well. Happy New Year to all. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.